Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 8, Episode 11, The Fall of the Mongols. When we last left the Yuan Dynasty, they were getting ready to invade Japan. As I hope we all remember, that did not work out for them. Subsequent invasions of Sakhalin and Vietnam also yielded zero net gains for the Mongol dynasty led by Kublai Khan. However, his ultimate triumph over the Song dynasty gave him the distinction of being the first emperor to rule all of China who was not ethnically Han Chinese. He died in February of 1294. Having outlived his sons, he was succeeded by his 30-year-old grandson, Temur, who was allegedly chosen at the Kuril Tai over his brother by being better at reciting the sayings of Genghis Khan. Temur Khan, known by the posthumous name of Emperor Chongzong, largely continued his grandfather's policies and seemed to follow the same path of adopting aspects of Chinese culture himself, as well as appointing administrators according to merit. Under his rule, members of many non-traditional groups were placed in positions of power, including Muslims, Christians, and Taoists. Kublai Khan had suppressed Taoism because of the pro-Han nationalism that so often came with it, but his grandson reversed this policy. One of the first actions taken by Temur Khan was to cancel the upcoming follow-up invasions of Japan and northern Vietnam. The treasury was already becoming strained from these incursions, and it seems unlikely that either would succeed if given just one more chance. Plus, the UN army would need to bolster its numbers to protect itself against the forces of the Central Asian Chagatai Khanate. The Kaidu-Kublai War had erupted just after the Toluid Civil War, which enforced Kublai Khan's claim to the throne, and had raged for 30 years, with most of the fighting taking place in Mongolia and northern China. Kaidu died in 1301, and a peace was concluded in 1304 in which the Chagatai recognized Temur Khan as their rightful sovereign and agreed to pay the regular tribute. At least, for the moment. Temur Khan ruled until his death in 1307. One of his more notable achievements was getting China involved in the politics of Burma, a Southeast Asian nation to their south whose ruling dynasty repeatedly invited the UN army into their nation to secure their governance against dissident groups. A Kurultai was called and he was succeeded by his nephew, who became known as Kulug Khan. His posthumous name was Emperor Wuzong. Kulug Khan, like his uncle Temur Khan before him, was a devout Buddhist and donated lavishly to the various temples around China and throughout Tibet. He also generously awarded high offices and titles to the various Mongol factions in hopes of shoring up their support. While this worked in the short term, it created a massive problem in the long term in the way of treasury shortages accompanied by runaway inflation. Although he attempted to bring the financial situation under control by reducing staff and cutting costs, when he died in 1311, the UN government was extremely unpopular with the people of China, 
who suffered under the economic uncertainty which Kulug Khan had created. He was succeeded by his brother, Buyantu Khan, who is remembered as Emperor Renzong. Buyantu Khan began with a general purge, ridding himself of many high officers who had been appointed by Kulug. Unlike his brother, Bayantu Khan was a dedicated Confucian who simplified the paper currency system, halted costly construction projects, and reintroduced the civil service examination system for potential bureaucrats nationwide. He reformed the legal system by more extensively codifying UN law, and even removed influential Mongol magnates who had been appointed as judges and replaced them with actual scholar jurists. Unfortunately for the empire, Buyantu's reign also saw the re-emergence of hostilities between the Yuan dynasty and the ever-troublesome Chagatai Khanate in 1314. The Ilkhanate, who ruled over Persia, Arabia, and the Caucasus, joined the war in alliance with the Yuan. The fighting largely took place within the Chagatai and Ilkhanate realms, and the affair was resolved in 1318 with the Chagatai once more defeated. After Buyantu Khan died in the spring of 1320, his son Gagian Khan took the throne. He is remembered as Emperor Yinzong. His ascension marks the beginning of troubled times for the Yuan dynasty, a series of short reigns which cultivated political instability. Gagian Khan ruled for only three years until he was assassinated in 1323. His successor, Temur Khan, reigned for five years, then died suddenly. His eight-year-old son, Ragibak Khan, reigned for about a month before his rule was cut short by an event known as the War of the Two Capitals. Just as the descendants of Genghis Khan came to blows in the Tolawid Civil War at the beginning of Kublai Khan's reign, so the descendants of Kublai Khan now fought between themselves over which family line was the official ruling line. While young Ragiba Khan was descended from Kamala, son of Kublai, there were many other branches who also claimed descent from Kublai, and one of those branches, the one descending from Dharmapala through Kulug Khan, held a coronation in Kanbalik. Although it is nestled in northern China, Kanbalik was used as a winter capital while the much more northern city of Shangdu, which you may have heard of under the westernized name of Xanadu, was the summer capital. El Temur, the son of the late Kulug Khan, led a faction which historians call the Restorationists against loyalists who supported young Ragiba Khan. It was actually the loyalists who attacked first, striking south and making their way through gaps in the Great Wall and arriving in force at Kanbalik. However, the Restorationists had a lot of support from armed warbands in Manchuria and Mongolia, and while the Loyalist army was stabbing toward Kanbalik, armies led by the descendants of Genghis Khan's brothers besieged the summer capital. The siege lasted only a day, probably because the Loyalists were without an army to defend the city against assault. The Loyalist ringleaders were executed along with the eight-year-old Ragiba Khan. While it seems like this should have brought an end to the fighting, Insurgents continued waging a bitter guerrilla campaign against the UN dynasty for another four years until the war finally ended in 1332. The new emperor of the UN dynasty was Jayatu Khan, 
a descendant of the Dharmapala line, who is remembered as Emperor Wenzong. Because his installation as the new Khan was so transparently illegal, his rule was immediately challenged by his older brother Kusala, who had been busy currying favor in Central Asia at the time of Jayatu Khan's ascension and the War of the Two Capitals. Kusala marshaled a huge army from western Mongolia and the Chagatai Khanate and brought them to Karakoram. Jayatu Khan abdicated in February of 1329 in favor of his brother after sitting on the throne for less than four months, hoping to avoid an all-out civil war. Kusala was named Kutuktu Khan and is remembered as Emperor Minzong. Kutuktu Khan would reign for only six months before being poisoned at a banquet hosted by his younger brother Jayatu. El-Temur, who initiated the coronation of Jayatu Khan and thus launched the War of the Two Capitals, was a high-ranking Kipchak who almost certainly masterminded the affair. He and his faction feared being marginalized as Kutuktu Khan seemed intent on bringing in more ministers from the Chagatai Khanate to replace them. Jayatu Khan was once more enthroned and allowed to continue his rule. I attribute Jayatu Khan as being the ruler of the Yuan dynasty and at least nominally over the Mongol Empire, but real power lay in the hands of El Temur, who ruled the nation with despotic power not unlike the Fujiwara regions of Japan. When Jayatu Khan died in September of 1332, his six-year-old son Rinchibal Khan was placed on the throne and later given the posthumous name of Emperor Ningzong. However, his reign would last only until December of that year, less than three months in total. I was unable to find a credible cause of death, but being that he was very young, it's certainly possible that he was afflicted with something for which the medicine of his day provided no assistance. With the youngest son of Kutuktu Khan gone, the best option in terms of rightful claim was Togon, the eldest son of Kutuktu, who had been essentially frozen out of government since his younger brother Richibal's ascension. Although El Temur did not want to enthrone Togon, who was 13 years old but already very independent-minded, he had little choice. Togon Khan was given the posthumous name of Emperor Shun. In addition to being less of a puppet than his younger brother, Togon Khan brought with him a ready cadre of advisors and sycophants ready to take up official office. His official enthronement was initially delayed, but El Temur died in May of 1332, and in July of that year, Togon Khan was officially installed. His posthumous name is Emperor Huizong. With El Temur Khan and a new sovereign on the throne, the new administrators appointed by Togon Khan took great pains assuring that El Temur's partisans would be locked out of government permanently. His primary minister was a man named Bayan, who hailed from the Merkid tribe of Mongols, who greatly favored putting his fellow Mongols in power and keeping the other ethnic groups out of the imperial court and bureaucracy. Bayan even abolished the imperial examination system, preferring Mongol patronage and preventing Han and other Chinese ethnic groups from holding any kind of administrative power. By the time of Togon Khan, the office of emperor had been greatly reduced by the preceding decades of infighting and factional strife. 
Bayan was not merely a high-ranking administrator, but a warlord with his own army. He killed the children of his late rival El Temur, and frequently arranged the assassination of others whom he saw as threats to his dominance of the imperial court. There was no practical means by which Togon Khan could rid himself of this troublesome warlord without the help of a warlord of his own. Enter Toktoa. The nephew of Bayan, Toktoa, was likewise of the Merkid ethnic group of Mongolia, but he had been given a traditional Chinese Confucian education and saw Bayan's suppressive policies as a long-term liability. He and his father secretly organized a coup alongside Togon Khan, and in the spring of 1340, they acted. As Bayan was busy on a hunting trip, Toktoa and his compatriots closed the palace gates and arranged for him to be arrested upon his return. He was sent into exile, and in the fall of 1340, Toktoa was installed as Grand Counselor in his place. Toktoa is an interesting figure, and he deserves his own special mention here. Shortly after his elevation, he spearheaded an effort to compile the official histories of the Liao, Jin, and Song dynasties. These were dynastic histories, meaning each one was treated as though it were a legitimate ruling dynasty who, for the time they ruled at least, enjoyed the mandate of heaven. There was plenty of opposition to writing such histories for the Liao and Jin dynasties from austere Han Chinese historians. In their view, the Jin dynasty in particular was nothing but a warband of barbarian Khitan raiders and not an official dynasty. Hoping to avoid potential unrest, Toktoa rushed the process a little for the official histories of Liao and Jin, and as a result, the histories themselves contain occasional errors, anachronisms, and exaggerations. It seems likely that the historians compiling the work also had difficulty finding sources to work from, but nonetheless, the histories were completed and the precedent somewhat established that even barbarian factions could establish legitimate Mandate of Heaven dynasties, something the UN dynasty had an obvious self-interest in promoting. In spite of the errors found within, these dynastic histories are still invaluable sources of information which we most likely would not have if not for the UN dynasty. However, while Toktoa was more suited to the office of Grand Counselor than his uncle Bayan, his administration was not without its missteps. In 1334, he lobbied to divert the course of the Yongding River to flow through the capital of Kanbalik, but the opposition was so fierce that he resigned. Decades of political intrigues and instability had left China's infrastructure in a permanent state of neglect. When the Yellow River flooded and changed course, it caused a catastrophic water shortage in the Grand Canal, which rendered the great artificial river unusable. When the UN administrators attempted to instead bring grain from the south using ocean transport, many of their ships were waylaid by pirates. In 1349, Toktoa was reinstated as Grand Counselor, but by then the damage was already done. As you have hopefully been able to discern, the two factions within the Mongol nobility of the UN dynasty tended toward either inclusive Confucian governance or anti-Han pro-Mongol policies, respectively. It's difficult to say whether either of those approaches would have worked in the long run, but 
Swinging from one to the other certainly did little to enhance stability or convince their subjects to feel content about their overlords. In 1338, a Buddhist monk named Peng Yingyu led an uprising in inland southern China, proclaiming Zhou Ziwang, one of his fellow rebel leaders, as the new emperor. While Zhou Ziwang was soon apprehended and executed, Peng Yingyu fled to the north and continued to spread his particular teachings regarding the imminent arrival of the Buddha, Maitreya. Called Mile Pusa in Chinese, the Buddha Maitreya is the Buddha of the future, whom Peng Yingyu claimed would soon appear on earth and put an end to suffering and bring about a new age of unbridled prosperity for all. The sheer velocity with which these teachings spread throughout southern China testifies to the discontent which many were feeling under the rule of the Yuan dynasty. The promise of a better tomorrow appealed to many, though the followers of this new religion often met under the cover of night to avoid persecution of the authorities who disliked its revolutionary origins. Though they were somewhat active throughout the 1340s, it was in the year 1351 that the Red Turbans, as they came to be called, caught their big break. Having convinced the UN administrators of the need to get the Yellow River back to its previous southerly course, Toktoa was given permission to raise a levy of laborers to force the river back into its proper route. He conscripted over 150,000 workers to accomplish this massive job, and although they were paid for their labor, the wages were substandard, and printing the money necessary to compensate these workers as well as paying for the materials needed caused nationwide inflation. Recruiting dissatisfied laborers proved quite easy for the Red Turban leaders in northern China, and soon they began making all kinds of mischief for the UN troops charged with keeping order. The guerrilla campaign in northern China made it possible for Red Turbans and their allies in southern China to likewise start raising hell. After managing to capture a circuit of cities in the north, the northern Red Turbans declared the restoration of the Song Dynasty, promoting a young boy whom they claimed descended from Emperor Huizong of Song. Those in the south likewise promoted a candidate as the founder of a new dynasty. The rest of the 1350s were terribly chaotic throughout the land, as UN armies were dispatched to restore order. In many clashes with regular troops, the Red Turban armies were outmatched and outfought. Several regional groups attempted to declare a new dynasty and seize the Mandate of Heaven, but they were usually crushed shortly after. The Red Turban Rebellion is particularly noteworthy for its huge level of violence. UN dynasty officials who fell into the hands of the rebels were often subjected to unspeakable torture and brutal, slow executions. Rebel leaders who fell into UN hands often suffered similar fates. What the Red Turbans lacked in clever fighting and strategic deployment, they made up for in sheer numbers. A massive army invaded Korea in 1359, possibly as revenge for the Goryeo dynasty in Korea sending troops to support the UN some years before. Although many in that first army were killed as the Goryeo armies drove them out, 
another Red Turban army of 200,000 invaded the following year, temporarily taking Kaesong before being driven out once more. We'll have more to discuss regarding the Red Turbans and their revolution in the next episode. While I've devoted much of this episode to the political struggles of the Yuan dynasty, it is worth our time to recognize their accomplishments in other realms. Though it was practically divided into four factions, the Mongol Empire was still, on paper, a unified polity with the Emperor of Yuan as the Great Khan. This meant that knowledge could now travel relatively unhindered over a large span of the world. In the 12 and 1300s, Arab and Persian mathematicians were considered the most skilled and cutting edge in the world. Arab numerals were adopted by Chinese mathematicians during the Yuan dynasty, and thanks to the ready flow of information from the Ilkhanate, they gained access to more advanced formulations and techniques, and even managed to make some of their own. Mathematician Zhu Shiji managed to not only construct some of the earliest matrices, but also created Pascal's Triangle about 300 years before Pascal himself. His book, Jade Mirror of the Four Unknowns, details his many contributions to the study of algebra in China, many of which I am not qualified to speak about, but Mrs. A History of Japan, who teaches mathematics, assures me that they are significant. In the combined fields of math and astronomy, a new calendar created by Guo Shoujing was adopted by the Yuan dynasty in 1281. Guo Shoujing made great strides in the area of spherical trigonometry, a field which was relatively new to China in his time. His calendar may have been partly inspired by Muslim calendars of his day, but we aren't truly certain of such a connection. You may recall that last season we detailed how the Song Dynasty saw the birth of movable type printing in the 1100s. The Yuan Dynasty generally promoted literacy and sponsored bookmakers and printing shops both to disseminate official commands and to spread newer publications. Some of these shops also printed paper money, an interesting innovation but one which would make court finances somewhat difficult due to its relative instability. Medicinal knowledge likewise spread across the Silk Road, introducing both East and West to the other's ideas about healing, disease, and general wellness. While neither really had an accurate conception about the body and many related elements, both had little things that worked which have since been proven trustworthy. The cultural exchange is also valuable, as those in the East learned about the four bodily humors, and those in the West learned about things like acupuncture. However, it wasn't all just exchanges of superstitions. Chinese physician Wei Yilin did some groundbreaking work in the field of joint repair, even performing surgery on some patients who were given anesthesia to reduce their discomfort. His book, Shi Yi De Xiaofang, or Effective Remedies of the Physicians, was a smash hit in his time, and many print shops struggled to keep up with demand. The fields of ceramics, poetry, theater, and music similarly thrived thanks in part to the influx of new ideas from around the world. White pottery with blue-painted decorations, usually scenes from nature, 
were one of the trademarks of UN-era ceramics and were in huge demand in the Islamic world. Poems written in the Sangku style, which was created toward the end of the Song dynasty, became increasingly popular under UN leadership as poems became songs to be performed in an operatic setting. Instruments from Western cultures began making their way across the Silk Road, enriching the performances and music of the 12 and 1300s. Regardless of any cultural contributions, however, the political instability of the latter-day UN dynasty eventually became its undoing. By the late 1360s, the UN dynasty faced a red turban movement which had become better networked, better armed, and much better organized than before. In the fall of 1368, a city near Kanbalik fell to a red turban siege, and Togon Khan fled for Shangdu. Kanbalik fell to the red turbans shortly thereafter. Next time, we will get to know the leaders of the red turbans who finally expelled the UN dynasty, and see which of those leaders would manage to become the next emperor of China. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan.